always try to challenge them. Don't be afraid that they might fail because failure, when they learn failure at early age, is just going to make them stronger and a better person and player down the road. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I welcome Jeff Carlson, retired head coach from Elk Grove High School in California. Jeff was the head coach for Elk Grove for 19 seasons, and during his time, Elk Grove Baseball captured eight section titles. During his tenure, Elk Grove produced several high-level players that have gone on to successful collegiate and professional careers, including a few you may have heard of. J.D. Davis, 2011 graduate and 2017 World Series champion with the Houston Astros. Nick Madrigal, 2015 graduate and 2018 College World Series champion, and of course the number four overall pick in 2018, and even Jeff's son Dylan, who was a first round pick by the Cardinals in 2016. On the show, Jeff and I discuss building the culture at Elk Grove, and he shares some advice for fathers that are coaches and have kids playing baseball. Jeff also offers valuable tips on how to communicate openly and accurately with players and coaches, and how to handle parents that are concerned about their kids' playing time. You're gonna love this episode, and here is Jeff Carlson. Jeff Carlson, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much, for Jonathan, for having me today. Absolutely, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and so a mutual friend of ours, Doug Latta, decided that or whenever I was out there, I was asking him, you know, who are some guys that I should get on the show? And you were the first guy that he mentioned. And so I know that if he gives you the stamp of approval, then you must be really, really good. So I've been looking for this forward to this for a long time. And, you know, I would love to hear a little bit about your baseball background and how you decided to get into coaching, though. Well, I uh, played uh, football first at Chico State University and also baseball. And when I graduated, went into the loan business of all things, trying to make money. I was a, a business major. And then a, a friend of mine talked me into coming out to help a high school team, the coach, and thought it'd be a great opportunity, you know, being an ex-player and, and you know, missing the game to, to get back into coaching. So so I started as an assistant, ended up being at that high school for three years. We both moved over to Elk Grove High School, where I'm currently at, and uh, was an assistant for three years there. And then uh, took over the, when he moved on, I took over the job and and was a head coach for 19 years, just retired last year when my youngest son graduated, felt it was time to move on to uh, pursue other things and kind of take some time to to watch him and, and watch the boys play as they play at the next level. And, and uh, you know, it's been tough. I thought it would be an easy transition, but to tell you the truth, it's been really tough taking this, you know, retiring and, and getting away from the game is a lot harder than I thought. Let's just put it that way. No doubt. Well, while we're on the subject of that, I'm sure there are some coaches that are either in a similar situation or that may be going through that soon. So is there any advice that you could offer that, that has helped you with this year and helped you transition from being the head coach of, of a very successful program 
to now taking a back seat and getting to watch your kids play? Well, just stay busy. I mean, just do the things that you said you were going to do when you stopped coaching. Mm-hmm. Spend more time with your family. I mean, I spent a lot of time, a lot more time with my wife, Karen, who's, you know, the number one coach's wife out there in, in the country. I mean, she's been, been huge in my life, our rock, um, everything she's gone through and spend more time with your loved ones. Obviously I have two boys playing. So that took up a lot of my time, able to watch their games and, and go down to Long Beach on the weekends and, and do things like that. And that's, that's just very important when you stop because it's just really hard when you've done something, you've been in a routine for, you know, 25 years, it's tough just to stop and go cold Turkey and just, all right, I'm, I'm going to get away from the game. It's really tough. And I, and I've offered to go out there and maybe help and they want me to come out there and help, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, it was too difficult just to kind of try to go out there on a part-time basis sure. um, and not do the, that I used to do. It's, it's really, it's really been a struggle. Oh, I, I would completely understand that. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of coaches that are listening that could definitely relate to that. But while we're on the subject of your two boys, uh, Tanner and Dylan, why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, where they are now? And then I'd love to get into some baseball coach and dad stuff because I have a son and, I, and he's nine months old. I have no idea if he's going to play baseball someday. And, you know, <laughs> I, I just want him to be successful in whatever he decides to do. But I know that a lot of our listeners get the opportunity to coach their kids. So I, I'd like for you to just tell us a little bit about them and then talk to us about how how the process of them growing up in the game and what you did, because obviously they've, they've been very successful and you did some things right. And so I'd love to get to hear your story behind that. Okay. Dylan currently plays in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. He's in double a in Springfield. He signed out of high school as a 17 year old. He's really young first round draft pick by Mm -hmm. the Cardinals out of high school. So that made the decision really easy for us. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously it was something he always wanted to do and dreamt about playing Major League Baseball. So he uh, he signed and has been really advanced up very quickly by the Cardinals, which which is great. I, I think that is huge for your program, for your kids, is to always try to challenge them. Don't be afraid that they might fail because failure, when they learn failure at early age, is just going to make them stronger and a better person and player down the road. So that was always type strategies I took with my team and my own my own boys is to try to always challenge them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tanner is uh, currently just finished his freshman year at Long Beach State playing for the Dirtbags. He's going to go out this summer and play in the Alaskan League. You know, it's been a pleasure. I, I've been very lucky that both boys, you know, progress and develop like they have, especially at a young age. Tanner also graduated as a 17-year-old. He just turned 18 the end of December. So he's basically a senior in high school mm-hmm. playing as a freshman in college. So it's been, you know, a real learning experience for him and his development and so forth and a challenge. But, you know, they were kind of thrown into the game. They had no no other choice. I mean, they were, you know, my wife worked and, and obviously I taught and coached at the high school. So they came out to practice and they were always around the football field, always around the baseball field. And they really took to it. They played both sports, you know, in high school until they both decided to give it up their junior year as far as football goes and really focus on baseball. You know, I've been very fortunate to have the staff I've had because they've allowed me to maybe leave a practice early to go watch their games when they're in Little League. And and I've always had good friends that were always coaching them. So it was always to be the bucket coach, you know, the third coach. Mm-hmm. I always 
I showed up late to games, late to practice, would miss practice a lot because of running the high school team. But they always allowed me to come out there and, and be part of it. And so I was always part of my boys and their development and, and coaching. And and it really helped build my program because a lot of their friends, obviously, that they played with in Little League, they would play on travel teams and so forth, all came through the high school. Cool. So what a better opportunity than taking these kids as seven-year-olds when they started, maybe, and the eight-year-olds. And Cal Ripken is our league. And, and then in travel ball and start developing these kids and having them call, come all the way up through your program and be coaching them for that many years and pushing out all your philosophies and, and stuff like that on them. So it was just, just an awesome opportunity. Just, I mean, very blessed that I was able to be part as much as I, I was with my boys and their friends and the development and then to come into the high school and both play together. Tanner was a sophomore starting third baseman on our section championship team. And Dylan was our center fielder and also a pitcher. So we won the section final that year. Dylan was on the mound. Tanner was at third base to win a section title with both of them on the field at the same time after all the years was just just an awesome experience. And don't get me wrong, there were struggles along the way. Anytime, you know, you're a dad and, and you're the head coach and, you know, there's struggles, as you would the obvious struggles of being dad and a coach and and so forth. But they always did a good job you know, differentiate, you know, from dad to coach. That was always called coach on the field. I was called dad off the field. Mm -hmm. And I think that was Karen's influence on them. You need to know the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not dad on the field. So you got to understand that. And they always handle that well. And I'm sure there's times in the clubhouse where, where guys said some negative things, I'm sure about me, their dad, and they just let it go. They never brought it home. We never brought anything home. And that was always a rule. And uh, they did a great job developing and handling that. And, and it was great time of my life. I mean, it, it was awesome. Well, fantastic. So I'm imagining, you know, you as, as coach dad and after a game that maybe they played really poorly. So what did, the, what did that conversation look like? Is that you said that you didn't bring very many things home, but how did you approach that if they had a bad game? And I know that you as, as coach, you're wanting to help them get better and help correct some of the, some of the things that, that they did. But what did those conversations look like after games? Well, it just, it just like any other player, you know, that was addressed at the field. If they had a poor game, you know, and it could be addressed from the clubhouse, maybe to the car or maybe from the car home. But after we got out of the car, that was it. We weren't going to bring it to the dinner table. We weren't going to, let it consume our life after we got off the field, the negativity. So, I mean, I told him if they had a bad game, you know, I told him this is what you need to do. I mean, you played poorly because of this, you made these decisions or, or so forth. You didn't weren't in the right spot here, or you had a bad approach at the plate. You didn't get the job done. But also when they had a great game, I, I'd tell them that, but that was just like any other player, any other player, you know, had a bad game, good game. You always want to address that with them. And I think it's important, and I know the question is probably on here, but as far as building culture, building communication as a head coach, I think that it's important that when a kid makes a mistake, that maybe you put your arm around him mm-hmm. and tell him. And I know there's times where the football coach came out of me and I was loud and abrupt, and but there's times for that. But there's also times where, you know, you need to put your arm around him and say, hey, we need to get better. This is what we need to do. You need to correct this. You need to come out to practice, whether you need to get 
go through the drill series on the tee or, you know, you need to do this in, in the fundamental series that we're working on to help your feet, help your footwork or whatever it was, this is what you need to do. And I think building those relationships is huge to any program. And that's very important. And it's, it's no different with your own son. If he's playing for you, you treat him just like any other player, no differently. And that was always something I tried to strive to do. And, you know, and a lot of times you, you see maybe dad coaches that are harder on their own sons because they want to show that to the other kids. And I, and I think that's wrong. You know, we want to treat everybody the same as far as that goes and communicate with them the same way. Perfect. And understand that completely. And I, I would love to get into some culture stuff, but I did have one for uh, one more question as far as being a, you know, mm-hmm. coaching a dad. And that's, did you, was there ever a time that they, I don't want to say got burnt out with the game, but was there ever a time where you were like, Hey, we need to, if you want to be as good as you want to be, then we need to go hit. We need to go play some catch. And, or was it always brought up by them first? It was always brought up by them first. That is one thing I would never do with them. I would never say, hey, you need to go out and take ground balls. You need to go hit. We need to go hit. I never wanted to be that dad that pushed their son to, like you call it, burnout, a burnout stage or, you know, get tired of the game because you're just constantly pushing, pushing, pushing. Right. And that's when I knew they were going to be next level players when they want to do it on their own. Mm Mm-hmm. And as a dad, I mean, we've been out of practice maybe three hours. I've been at school and they're like, dad, let's go hit. It's like, you know, as a dad, you're like, oh man, you know, it's time. I want to relax. I want to just chill out. But you have to, as a dad, hey, if they want to hit, man, you got to go. You know, whether your arm's hurting, whether you're tired because you worked all day, that's important. If they want to do it, I mean, you need to get up and do it. And that's what helps their development. And once I knew they, they wanted to do it on their own, I knew they were going to be pretty good players and I never wanted to push them to and force them to do something. That was always my philosophy. If they don't want to play baseball, Hey, that's great. I would have been hurt. I'm a football coach also. And when they didn't want to play football anymore and I, and I got it, you know, they, they want to develop their baseball tools and, and they want to be next level baseball players. And they felt playing football and baseball, they would miss out on some things during the summer and so forth. I mean, that hurt as a football coach. That hurt me that they didn't want to play football anymore because I really wanted them, and they were very good football players. I really wanted them out there because there's nothing like a Friday night, you know, the high school and the football tradition. Mm -hmm. But I understood, and I never told them that, and it hurt me. It's like that's their decision, and and I always supported their decision, whether whether it was go out to get extra work, whether it wasn't. I never wanted to force them to do anything because I felt then they would would burn out and – they wouldn't move on to the next level. I love that. And and I love that, that philosophy. And I think that the more successful coaches with successful sons that that I hear say that, I think that that just further cements some different things that that I was thinking as well. So I love to hear you and, you know, being the son of a former major league dad, he did the exact same thing, which is looking back is a little bit crazy to me because that was such a big part of his life and baseball is such a big part of your life. And it's so easy to Mm -hmm. fall into the, fall into the patterns of being a coach more than you need to be. So that is something that I'm sure all of us can learn to do a little bit better and being dad when we need to be and being coach when we need to be too. But let's talk about Elk Grove a little bit. And Uh you you mentioned that you were there for 19 years. You guys were very successful. You won an ABCA coach of the year. And I just want to know, so you're there in the first year. I want to start there if you don't mind. 
And what did that, what did that process look like of, okay, I have this huge vision for what I want the program to look like. Where did you start and how did you continue to evolve that process over your 19 years? Mm -hmm. Let me start back a few years. So three years prior to that, taking over the program, I was an assistant coach right? and we were, we were very fortunate. Don't get me wrong. The winning culture, the, the program itself, the winning tradition and the strong pro baseball program was already started here at Elk Grove. So it wasn't like I came in and they were just kind of an average program. This was a well-known program, a great program. So there was a lot of pressure, but the first year I came over as an assistant coach, we were ranked, I think fourth in the nation It's probably one of the best teams we've ever had here. Probably, I don't think any team could stack up with it to it. I think we had ended up with like 13 Division One players wow. on the roster. Our outfitter actually was a D1 football player. He didn't. He could have went baseball. Four guys were drafted off that team. Ended up playing professionally in the minor leagues. I don't know if a couple of them made it, but I mean that's the team we were handed. And basically, we're told just to come in and not mess it up. Sure. So. Luckily for us, we didn't mess it up too bad, and, and we won a section title that year, and, and they were great kids, a great team. So right then and there, I had a great starting point of what a great team should look like, of the chemistry of the team. We had great kids. I mean, we had backups that barely played that ended up playing at the D1 level. So you can imagine that. You're, you're on your high school team. You weren't even getting into games, and you were that level of a player. And they never complained. They just went about their business. We had great competition in practice. We, they got better. Each player got better. They got each other better. And so that was a kind of culture that I wanted to create or continue here. Mm -hmm. So when I took over, it wasn't pretty much about building the program. It was pretty much how am I going to maintain the program and even take it to a level above of where it's at. Mm -hmm. That was my big big concern or my big goal, my big vision. And so how do you do that? You know, what are the things that can take this program to the next level? And for me, the philosophy was never about winning. I know it's e e easy to say, everybody's going to go, Oh, come on. Everybody wants to win. No, don't get me wrong. I want to win every game. Mm -hmm. It's about competition. I want to win every game, but it, that wasn't the main goal. My main goal was about developing players so they can play at the next level. That's how I took my approach. I wanted to see a player playing the College World Series. I wanted to see a player playing the major leagues, play at a Division One college, play at a local JC. That was my thrill as a coach. I think if I can have a player that does something like that or I can watch him on TV play the game of baseball, I think I accomplished something. Yep. So that was always my philosophy. Maybe a kid became a doctor. It was like, hey, maybe because of the game of baseball, I helped him a little bit, maybe become a doctor or go that way. They're, they're being, you know, having success. And so that was always my thing. Move these guys on to the next level. And so everything we tried to do as a program was to develop and to build and to move these guys on to the next level. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud about, the amount of players that were able to move on and play at the next level or, or come back and, and be successful. That, that was the big thing. I love that, and, and I love that personal philosophy. But if you don't mind, let's get into some nuts and bolts of how you guys decided yep. you did that. So what are some different practical ways that you were able to do that, either in the team setting, in the practice setting, training setting, or just off mm -hmm. the field? Well, I, I think 
first talking about like creating the culture. I mean, everybody knows, you know, you got to have goals, you got roles, relationship, product. I mean, those are the, the basic, I mean, everybody tries to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So when I thought, when you asked me this question, when you sent it, I thought about what are things that we kind of did different that maybe I saw that other programs didn't do sure. to build this culture and how are we a little bit different? And some programs might already have this stuff or might already do this stuff. But these are things that I thought were key things for us and what made our players better and just made the culture better. And the first thing was I thought we needed to schedule up, play the best competition we could play to be challenged. And maybe that would take us out of the national rankings and maybe we wouldn't have undefeated record. But I thought that was going to help our players play against the best and that was just going to make them better. Sure. So we always try to travel. We always went down to the San Diego Easter tournament. I thought this was a, a big deal for our program. It sounds simple, but every time we went there, and we never went 4-0, majority of the time we'd go 2-2, two and two, to tell you the truth. But we'd always come back. We'd always be better for some reason. Okay. And people would always ask, well, you guys always seem to be better when you come back after your, your San Diego trip. And I go, yeah, because you're putting these kids into vans, you're putting them into a small hotel room, you're making them live together for four days, they're playing against elite competition, so they're seeing guys that are first-round draft pick, you know, you're seeing guys that are going to be in the major leagues, so they're going to see what level they need to get to, and how hard they need to work to get to that level, and you're going to build that team chemistry, which is a huge part of the culture. And they're going to go out to the beach. They're going to play volleyball on the beach, football on the beach. They're going to hang out as a team for four days. And that's hard to do during a high school season to, to make those kids, you know. And it, it seems simple, but that has always helped us. That, that was a huge thing. And the other thing was we converted an old building and we had a clubhouse. No one else had a clubhouse around us. Okay. And it, it seems simple. And I, I know maybe in the Midwest and, and other programs, that's, Every school has these things, but we're a public high school. Nobody else around us had a clubhouse. So, you know, you either changed in a big locker room or you went out to your car, grabbed your stuff, you changed out the field real quick. Mm-hmm. You never really hang out with your team before and after practice. And I thought this was a huge part of building the culture for us because now they were in a small, confined area every single day and they had to communicate with each other. They put up a Nerf hoop, they had competitions. We had competition going. We had fun stuff going, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. And it was always a meeting place after practice where we communicated. And that's important. You know, the coach is communicating to the players every day. And I thought that was a huge thing that really gave us an advantage for some reason. I, I don't know. When I thought back, these are like, they seem simple, but there were big things for us that nobody else had around us or mm-hmm. did around us that set us apart from everybody else and kind of took us to a different level. And once we had those things and started doing those things, the players, we just, they rose to a different level. Guys would move on and other guys would see that around our area because we're a public high school and they would want to come in and, and play for Elk Grove. And that, that was huge. We wouldn't lose that private school kid in our area. That was a great player to go to the private school. They would come here because they wanted to be part of the culture a part of the development and they wanted to move on like they'd seen the previous players before them. And I, and I thought those were some things that 
that really helped us as far as culture. XBAT has a special offer for our listeners. The XBAT Speed Trainers, powered by Driveline Baseball, are a revolutionary bat speed training system that utilizes a mix of overload and underload weighted training bats to promote bat speed, power, and precision hitting. This month, Axe released their newest training bat, the Axe Long Trainer. The Long Trainer is a 37-inch, 37-ounce training bat that helps high school, college, and pro hitters improve their bat path and increase bat speed. It comes with data-driven training programs from Driveline Baseball for in-season and off-season development. Go to axbat.com and use our code AOTC at checkout to save 10% on your purchase of Axbat training products, including all of the Axbat speed trainers and wood bats. Axbat, your fastest swing starts now. Sure, and that you know, I, I love hearing what other programs do different because I think that once you're immersed in your own culture, it's really hard to see what other what other people do a little bit different than you. And so I I really like that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier just briefly about, Hey, you may need to do the drill series on the T or you may need to do the drill series and your, with your footwork. So it sounds like you had a system for several different things. And this is just me throwing that out there, but how were you able to systemize the process and, and what does that look like? That's, uh, and this is kind of where my football coaching background, I, I, I consider myself a football coach that coached baseball. Because mm-hmm. when I got over to Elk Grove, I started coaching football. They kind of threw me in the fire. I was a JV head football coach, no experience. And so I had to learn the process. And, and a lot of my mentors were football coaches. And so I took that approach to football and brought it out to the baseball field. Probably nothing different than everybody else does. But I thought years back ago, we're going to focus on the fundamentals. Okay. That was huge. So we would have a first, we do base running. We get out there. We'd work just on our first step or second step. We break everything down into small components and then have a sequence of everything we did. And, you know, with our catch play. And then we, then we'd always do fun every day. This was every day. We would not skip our fundamentals. So we, you break off near position groups like everybody does and you just work on your basic fundamentals we just call them fundies all right time for fundies Mm -hmm. outfitters go catchers go pitchers go infielders go and we'd have a whole drill series that we do and we do it every day we just repeat it the same stuff you know start your bare hand you know everybody's seen all these drills and we've all been to the clinics and so forth but these were all the things that i've taken from clinics and so forth and i put them all together package them up. And it was something we do every single day. And then when we do our hitting sequence, we'd always, we had a, a drill series for that, a T drill series for that. I know Doug, when you talk to Doug, I know he's not a big T guy, <laughs> but you know, I was fortunate enough 20 something years ago when he opened the ball yard to be in on that process. Mm-hmm. So I got to watch Craig Wallenbrock, who's a big, obviously a big hitting guru now, a big mm-hmm. name out there that works with a lot of major leaguers, obviously. And uh, I was able to watch him work on with a 15-year-old kid named Delman Young back years ago. And I watched him do this T-drill series. And I go, man, this is incredible. So I brought that back to Elk Grove years ago, and I started building that. And that was kind of our building block of our hitters because what it did is it tricked them into the proper hand path and extension that I wanted them to hit. 
because we're always about balance, hand path extension. And I didn't know this, but I guess I was teaching <laughs> this swing 20 years ago, which now they, they all label it now as it used to be an uppercut, mm-hmm. but now it's, it's called what our launch angle swing now, sure, Yeah, I guess. So I guess I was teaching this 20 years ago when I, you know, we're just teaching the swing the best we could. Mm-hmm. So this T drill series, it's something I swear by and I've used. I, I've talked about it in clinics and so forth. And I got this just from being a fly on the wall at the ball yard 15 years ago, watching a guy named Craig Wallenbrock work with a kid named Delman Young, who ended up being, I think, a pretty good player, at, obviously, in a first round, uh, first pick of the draft and, and so forth. And it just worked. And that was our foundation. And it worked. And that helped us. That's been our big key of developing hitters over the years, I think besides a lot of other stuff. But that's kind of our approach as far as development is to take everything, put it into the fundamentals, to break it into parts, and to work on it every day. Those are things that we don't skip. We work those drills every single day. And then we hit. We hit every day. Because I always, my philosophy was if, if you're not hitting, you're not going to be able to play at the next level, obviously, yeah. unless you're blessed with a great arm and so forth. And so I always passion myself around hitting and developing hitters. And so we do whatever we could to develop hitters. And that this was a big process. And we, we'd hit, we throw them every day. Cause I see a lot, I would talk to a lot of high schools and it might be different in different parts of the country. And it might be different now, but 15 years ago, there's a lot of times where high schools, because of time frame, they would just spend a day on defense. Next day would be on offense, or maybe they didn't have the coaches that could throw and so forth. But we throw them every day. I mean, I know that's common practice now, but that was something, there wasn't a day that went by that we didn't hit. We hit, we hit, we hit. We did our drill series on the tee every day. You know, I know that we want to make everything game-like, but we always had the L screen up close. So we're always simulating at least 85 miles an hour mm-hmm. in our BP because we had it up so close because we had to save our arms because we were throwing every day. Sure, yeah. So now that's all a big thing now, but we've always trained like that for years. So it was just something we've always done. And I think that was huge on, on our player development of just doing the fundamental stuff. And that was big. No, and I mean this with all pun intended. It sounded mm-hmm. like you did a lot of things that were ahead of the curve. And so I uh, I couldn't help thinking of that as, as <laughs> you were going over this stuff. But whenever you're doing these fundamental, and you call them fundies, and that's yep. something that that's definitely a football term, funding indie work. But exactly. But with when you're taking time in practice to do this stuff, how much time are you allotting? Is it like five, 10 minutes or is it like 20, 30 minutes? Usually 15 minutes. So we get in, we'd always start with base training. Our, our kind of our skeleton of practice and in, in a quick nutshell here, mm-hmm. we'd always start with base running, going to, you know, our dynamic warm up, going to our catch play which would include long time, you know, all the catch play stuff. And then right after catch play, it was always 15 minutes of fundamental work, always. Now, beyond that, then we might have another 15 or, or 20 minutes of fungo work or four-way, we call it, you know, outfielders getting fungo or, or machine work. And then we get into a team defense type of whether we're doing a first and third that day, bunt D or whatever, and then we flip it over after that into the offensive seg, and we always left an hour for offense, always an hour. So it pretty much broke down about an hour of – the first part was about an hour, an hour and a half, 
and then the next part was an hour limit. Basically, a two and a half hour practice mm-hmm. and be out. We didn't want to burn them out. We wanted to be, you know, get in and out quickly. And then, so our offensive seg, whether you know we have our basic station work or short game, whether a short game we work a four man short game drill before that, or we just built it into the rotation, the hitting stations, that type of work. And then some type of, we do some lives that, you know, hitting was different every day as far as it might be situational, it might be live stuff or whatever. And then we'd end with some type of base running conditioning drill. We used to call Cerritos and stuff like that and, okay. and things like that. But it's nothing that, you know, I invented. Obviously, I, I stole from everybody else just like everybody else does. I mean, that's huge. I mean, I, I'm the best thief out there. I, I try to steal from everybody. If you know it's a great concept, I'm, I'm going to use it. And that's big. I'm sure we'll get into that as, as far as talking to advice for young coaches and so forth. No, absolutely. I love that. And that's something that I'm really going to try hard to systemize some different things that I do because, and this is, this is a problem that I have, is I get to interview great guests every week like yourself. And I'm like, man, I, I want to do all of it. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and I want to be able to toe the line between doing stuff that's so monotonous, it's boring that they're not getting better, but we have to do those Correct. things. Right. But Correct. we also you want do. to, unfortunately you do. Right. And, but we also want to give them some different exciting things that are innovative. And this year Correct. being my first year back at union, this was, this was a little hard for me because I was trying to get to know the kids and I was trying to, to understand how they swung. And, you know, obviously you can see them in a cage and you can see them in a, in a game and it's going to be a little bit different because they may look Correct. terrible in a cage, but if they hit, they hit, right? Hitters hit. And so being able yep. to develop a system that you're talking about is, I think, just absolutely paramount in being able to get the most out of it. Because a lot of the times this year, I, I, was, I spent 10 minutes explaining how everything worked and that's 10 minutes that we weren't getting better. And so being able to take Correct. less time explaining what's going on and more time actually doing the things with, with intent, then I think that that's, that's always going to be the better process, or at least that's, that's the thing that I'm trying to do this summer. Another thing that you have mentioned several different times and something that I think is probably the biggest key to being a successful coach, and that's your effective communication. And so talk to us about that and then talk to us about how you were such an effective communicator, because by several different accounts, you were, you've mentioned it several times. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, that obviously that's huge. That's huge. That's a big part of building the culture and so forth. The buy-in of your players. I mean, communication is key. And once again, I, I think the way you communicate is huge. Now I had to learn this, believe me, as a young coach, I mean, having that football background and football, it seems like you're intense. You're, you know, there's one way, right? And I kind of took that out to the baseball and I was, I kind of coached every kid the same way. And now kids have changed, right? Everybody says how kids have changed over the years. You know, they have video, all the video games, phones, everything's a little different. So as a coach, I had to evolve and realize that you can't coach just one way and communicate one way. It's not going to be effective that you need to coach or communicate with your players differently because every player is different. That's a hard thing, especially for young coaches. I mean, that's kind of the advice I give to a young coach right away is that you have to coach or communicate with these kids differently based on how the kid's personality is. And that's, that's hard because you got to figure out 
like you were talking about, you had to figure out your kids, your, their swing and stuff, but you all got to figure out their personality. How do I communicate with them about their swing? Maybe one kid, I can be a little more straightforward and abrupt and a little more boisterous where he could take that. Where another kid, I need to put my arm around him and say, hey, because he might be intimidated if I'm a little bit loud or a little bit passionate, a little overpassionate about something. So I think that's the big thing with the communication. One thing we always did too is we always, in the beginning of the year, brought the kids in, never a one-on-one meeting, always had two coaches in there just so in case a message was relayed to a parent differently, you always sure. had someone else in there to kind of kind of back you up. Mm-hmm. But we always brought the kids in and we would talk to them where they're at, tell them the rules. And we tell the kids, we're going to be honest. Mm-hmm. You might not like what you hear, but we're going to be honest to you. And I think the kids appreciate that. They might not like it at first, but I think they appreciate that, that you're just completely honest with them. And you tell them up front, okay, hey, you might not play this year just because based on what we have coming back or what we have in front of you, or you might have a chance to pinch hit. You need to be prepared for that. Just define their roles and communicate in their roles. And this could be done once a week. We always try to do it at the beginning of the year, maybe a midway point, because you, you have kids that are kind of not playing. They start falling off and you really want to bring them back in and say, hey, you know, you're doing a good job in the role you're doing. You know, we just want to tell you you're doing a good job at that, but maybe you need to do this and, and continue to work on this with your swing and do things. And I think kids appreciate that because they feel that they're getting coached. And the biggest thing, they feel that you care about them. Sure. I mean, that's the biggest thing is that when you're communicating with them like that, they feel that you care about them. Mm-hmm. And now they're more into buying in. They're more into playing that role. Maybe they're not getting all the playing time in the world, but they at least know that you know that they're there and you're communicating and you're trying to help them. Sure. And I think that's huge as a coach. But I think the biggest thing is being able to coach kids individually and differently uh, with a different type of method because you get through to them better. One, this is a funny thing, and you might have seen this over the years, but sometimes they hear you every day. They kind of start, it just kind of goes through them a little bit, like you're coaching the swing, you're over on the tee, you're, hey, you need to do this, and you feel like they're not listening to you. Well, I've done this, and I feel it's bad or not. <laughs> but I've had maybe a scout walk up on practice, maybe a college coach or something, or, or even a friend that maybe has never even coached. And, and I'll tell them, hey, can you go tell Johnny over there that he needs to do this and do this, that? And sometimes when he hears it from a different voice, mm-hmm. And obviously a scout has a lot of backing, so they're going to perk up to a scout. But I even told friends, hey, can you go tell them this? And they'll actually go, oh, that's great. Okay, and it'll get through to them. So it's just a different strategy because it's somebody else. And maybe they think that person is a coach or a scout or <laughs> or something that it, it helps. I mean, right. it's crazy how we try to do things to, to get the kids. But in, overall, we're helping the kid. And, hey, it's an effective strategy to, to help them out, get oh. better. I like that, and that's something that over the last couple of years I am developing more of a philosophy on over communicating. And I know I use that term, but I don't think that there that we can. And I think Correct. that that as a player, you would rather hear, "Hey, little Johnny, this is why you're not playing. You're probably not going to play a ton," rather than them wondering whether they're going to be in the lineup or not. Because every player thinks Correct. that they should be in the lineup along with the eight other best guys, right? 
And I wonder sometimes about even whenever you take guys out of the lineup or move them down, whether it, should that be a, a time that you communicate that, maybe take 30, 45 seconds to do that? Or what's the fine line between having to talk to everybody about why you moved from fourth to sixth, right? Or taking them out of the lineup for a day versus where you think is that fine line between effective communication versus we shouldn't worry about this. I think you do need to worry. For me, a simple thing like saying, hey, you haven't done anything wrong, but we just need to mix it up. And and maybe I feel this guy is heavy spin, that pitcher that is heavy spin. And I feel that uh, Dave has a better opportunity to hit spin than you do. So we're going to move you down maybe to get you some fastballs. I think things like that help because anytime, you know, that shakes up a kid. Anytime they move in position of the lineup, I mean, even my own kids, when they're playing for someone else, oh man, you know, I'm, I got moved, you know, from the four hole to the six hole. It's not a big deal, but to them it is. And it can really psych them out and, and get to them mentally. So I, I think just a simple communication, hey, this is why we did it. I mean, you have a reason why you're doing it, right? As a coach, you wouldn't just switch the lineup just because you felt like switching lineup. Right. You're switching lineup because you felt that it's some advantage that you're going to get in a better position to win or or score runs that day. So there's some little reason, and it's not a bad reason. It's just, like I said, maybe th- this guy has a better matchup for this pitcher and so forth, and that's why we did it. So it's a simple 30-second conversation with a kid that why you're doing something, you know, why you're pinch hitting for him maybe was not bad. And that goes back to your over-communication. I don't think you can over-communicate. Mm-hmm. So there is a fine line. I mean, you pick and choose. But I like to, anytime I make a move like that, I always would tell a kid, hey, we're pinching him for you just because I think he has a better chance sure. right now. You know, you're not seeing the ball today. It's just one of those days. Don't worry about it. You're going to be back in the lineup tomorrow. It's just one of those days. A simple thing like that, I think, helps the kid mentally. Oh, I, I definitely like that. And, and I love that. You are again, like I said, you're the more that we can communicate to the players, I think that that it only helps our cause, and especially if we do it on such a consistent basis that maybe they're hearing it enough to where they're relaying it to the parents. I think that may get the parents to <laughs> to not have the email about playing time or why is, and they still may because they're not playing, and they may hear it from their son a thousand times, and they may be interested. So, what did that look Absolutely. like whenever you got that email of? Coach Carlson, this is such and such parents. Uh, I would like to sit down with you and talk about why little Johnny's not playing. What What was your response to that? Well, that, that really, to tell you the truth, that maybe happened maybe in my 20 years, and it was through maybe the athletic director or the principal or maybe even the superintendent. It was never directly to me mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we lay out the rules. That's important. In the beginning of the year, you lay the rules out. And my role was always the player can always come to me at the appropriate time and discuss playing time. I was not going to discuss it with a parent ever. I will have conversations with parents if they feel there's some type of personal problem going on outside of baseball and I can help their son with that problem. I'm definitely, my door is open to help a kid out in that way. But if it's about playing time, I just wouldn't tolerate it. And I laid it out in the beginning Sure. And to tell you the truth, I, I never had a huge issue with that. I mean, there was times where kids didn't play. The parents went to the AD or something, and, you know, we had to sit down and meet and 
And I would explain, well, this, this, and that. And then the parent would be, oh, okay. And then that was pretty much it. But I re- I've been lucky. I really didn't have those questions. I'm, I'm sure parents questioned it, but they just never publicly or send me an email about playing time because they knew the rule. And the kid would come to me and we'd tell him point blank of this is why you're not playing. This is what you need to do to get on the field. And sometimes the truth hurts and they didn't like it, but we were honest with them. So that's kind of what we did. The other thing, the other thing I would do in the beginning of the year too, I would say I do take suggestions on the lineup. So if you're a parent out there and have a suggestion for the lineup, you can make up your lineup, write it on a piece of paper, wrap it in a $100 bill, and you can leave it on my desk, <laughs> and I'll consider it. That, that's always my opening line. So they knew right then that was kind of the icebreaker. Sure. And, uh, that's good. and that kind of really set the stage for, hey, let's not question playing time. You know, the kids can, yeah, I'll talk to the kids about it all the time. That's appropriate time. Just not after a game, obviously, after sure. we just had a tough loss. and But that's kind of just, things you set down in the beginning of the year, your rules and so forth. And, and hopefully you don't have to deal with that type of stuff. No doubt. So what, what, besides the, we don't talk about playing time unless your son comes to us and the mm-hmm. lineup, the lineup card thing, what else did you talk about? And what else did you lay out in the beginning of the year meeting? Uh, just your standard rules, what the expectations, you know, just the standard things that I know we all talk about uniform and the the biggest one for me and this is this was always and it's funny even my wife would make a joke about it but you show up to the field we always have water or Gatorade in a bucket for them I never wanted communication with anybody except their teammates and the coaches once we stepped on went to the gate of the field during a game or practices were closed and you always have the mom or dad that would come with a Gatorade bottle go over the fence bring in Gatorade or candy bars into there during a game. And that was one of my pet peeves. So that was something we always discussed. Do not have any communication. The coaches are there to coach your sons. We want their full attention. We don't want them distracted. We supply Gatorade water. If they need something else, they need to bring it, be responsible and bring it. Cause we just didn't want those distractions and it just looked bad. I thought, so even my own wife, you know, don't do that. It would warn parents. Don't do that. <laughs> and they would laugh about it. But, you know, those types of things, those just type of general rules, expectations. We'd introduce the coaches, obviously, go over fundraising stuff, just lay out. We had a baseball manual that we had. That's not too long, but it just laid out everything, all the expectations, which I think are huge, just, just like you're teaching a class. Sure. I mean, you're going to go over all the expectations of your class, all the rules. What happens if you do break a rule? What is the process? What is the academic, the 2.0 rule, stuff like that. We do a lot of traveling. We'll always travel. Like I said, we try to travel during the Easter or preseason. And what are those types of rules with hotel policy stays and so forth? Stuff like that. Perfect. Now, uh, you did mention fundraising, and a lot of our, our listeners are high school coaches. Did you guys have mm-hmm. any that were really, really good? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a baseball dinner where it's awesome, all the uh, minor league and if we're fortunate enough to have some MLB players, we'll come back. It's usually the end of January, so it's a good time right before they break for uh, spring training. You know, about 400 people. We turned into a crab feed the last couple of years, so we got more. But it's around 400 people. We, you know, we have the auction. It's just typical 
crab feed, tri-tip dinner type things. That's always kind of our biggest thing. You know, we do the standard. We sell restaurant cards. You know, every everybody as a public high school, there are rules to how much you can fundraise and do things and, and use your players for fundraisers. But it's pretty much the, the standard ones. I tried to limit it because when I first got into coaching, I was like, oh, we need to make all this money because we want to do all these things. And all the money that goes back in the facility itself, I mean, because we don't really get help with our facility, we have to do pretty much everything ourselves. All the money that just goes back in the facility to try to maintain a great facility for the boys and the program, you know, it takes a lot. So we had to do a lot of, lot of little fundraisers. And I try to eliminate that. I try to do, stick to like four. We started a golf tournament too that's been building steam. That's getting better. We've only done that a couple of years though. But our biggest thing is we've always had a, a first pitch dinner, mm-hmm. which I think is you need to have. It's just you can introduce your coaches. You can introduce the varsity team. They're there to serve. We got great support from the community, people that support us that come to the dinner, and they get to see the ex-players, a lot of alumni. It's just great for the program, great way to make money, obviously, for the program. So I think our budget, when I finished, was about 100000 Wow to run our program, which I don't, (laughs) it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So we had to raise a lot of money to do the things we do. We go to San Diego and we pay for everything. Mm -hmm. We wanted a first class trip. We want to, we want to be like a college program. That's what I've always strived to be. We go on the road, we go down to Fresno, we spend the night, one or two nights, play Buchanan, Clovis, teams like that are great in our area. We go down there because I think that's important, you know, obviously about the competition thing we talked about earlier. So we got to raise money for that. But we, you know, we did the standard things that hit us on restaurant card sales. We did like pumpkin sales during Halloween. We do resells during Christmas, things like that. A golf tournament, baseball dinner. We have a snack bar. We don't get a lot on the snack bar. We have signs on our outfield fence mm-hmm. that are nice that people, the businesses renew that we get a good chunk of money from. When those are basically our fundraisers right there. I love it. Another question that that Mm -hmm. I always like to ask uh, head coaches is, did you get to hire your own staff? Did they interview through you or through your athletic director? Yes. The process now is that, you know, obviously they'd have to do an interview through the AD and the the admin and the head coach. But yes, I get to, that was a big thing for us is, and that's advice. The biggest advice I got, I think that's one of the questions, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? And that was try to surround yourself with the best possible coaches you can find. And I think that has been our key, our key to our culture, our development, all that. I mean, the the staff I have here or had here now, longtime assistant coach took over the program, which is great. And and the staff stayed the same, but they're loyal. They've been here for 10, 12 years. And I mean, obviously we don't uh, public high school. We make peanuts. We probably lose money, to tell you the truth, uh, coaching baseball. But they all love the game. They're all passionate. They've been in the program. They're loyal. We have a couple ex-players that came back that we coach that are now involved with the program. And without them, the program wouldn't be where it's at. It's, you know, I know I get a lot of the credit, but believe me, they deserve all the credit because they're loyal. They they get the kids to buy in. They, they're passionate. They go to clinics. They want to be the best. And the biggest thing, they're just loyal. They're here every day. I mean, it's hard to find, especially on the lower level, somebody that's going to be here every day that wants to learn and do the things and emulate 
the head coach's philosophies all the way down. And I think we've had that. I saw that in the football program when I got here. The loyalty in the football program from the freshman staff all the way up was phenomenal. And that's what I wanted to copy. And I think that's huge. And try to surround yourself with the best possible coaches you can find and loyal coaches. And they don't need to be maybe the best, you know, baseball fundamental coach. They can learn that if they're passionate by going out and talking to guys. I mean, we can learn so much. I mean, your podcast, I mean, what an amazing part with, with Doug and, and Craig. I mean, that stuff was awesome. I mean, thank you. Talk about, I mean, just having Coach Bomber from Sac City, stuff like that. I mean, the stuff you can learn from just the things you're doing is incredible. And for these young coaches, I mean, I wish I had this to reinforce all this stuff. I was lucky that I was on the foundation of the ball yard with, with Doug and, and Craig Wallenbrock and guys like that. I was fortunate enough. If I, if I wasn't, you know, who knows where we'd be right now. But that is huge. And we're able to hire those coaches. So that's, that's awesome. So whenever you're, whenever you're going through hiring them, you may have some guys that you know really well mm-hmm. and you recommend them for the job. But if you didn't and you were, you know, you, you didn't know the guys, you're trying to get to know them. Did you have any favorite interview questions that you asked? <laughs> to tell you the truth, I, I don't think I've interviewed um, a coach. I mean, it's a, we've always kind of just sat down and, and I've always known them. Hmm, and awesome. are they been expert? Yeah, it's a, that's an amazing thing. They've, they've been here. Even when I took over, yeah, we did informal interviews, but we didn't have a, you know, it was pretty much me sitting down with the coach and just talking, you know, and it was, there was no like standardized questions. It was like, okay, give me your background. I mean, just like we're doing now on this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. tell me about your background. Tell me why you'd be good. You think you'd be a good coach, stuff like that. I mean, just some things, but in a informal conversation. Perfect. And that's kind of how I've hired all the coaches. Yeah. A great story is, and, and a lot of them been ex players. So a couple of years back, a kid gets, he played at Fuller. He's a pitcher at Fullerton, played in the minor leagues, got released. And he comes back living home and go, hey, you want to coach? You know, we need a freshman head coach. You'd be great. And was pretty much, yeah. I mean, that was the interview. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. All right, you're hired. He coaches our freshman team for one year, does a great job. They win the league. But that's besides the point. They win the league, whatever. Does a great job. Real passionate about coaching. Next year, this is a problem with my young coaches. They get stolen by the, the JCs, which, which is not good for us. But <laughs> so the Kasumi's river college is right next to us. They get him over there to be their pitching coach. So he's there for two years. Last year, he gets hired by the Astros as a minor league assistant coach. He's with their triple A club his first year, kind of doing their stats and, and so forth. Does such a great job. He's now their mid a manager in quad cities. He's the head coach and they're in first place. They're the team that got flooded out and had all the road games mm-hmm. and they're in first place. And he played, I think 40 road games to begin the year and they're in first place. He's doing a great job now. So he started out as a freshman head coach at Oak Grove high school. Now he's in a ball as a head coach on his way to, to moving up the ladder. I mean, that, that's, that's awesome. that. Yeah. I, that, I mean, you talk about excitement and that's why we do it. I mean, things like that is, is kind of cool kind of a cool story. Absolutely. So I've got a couple questions before we let you go. And this one is Mm -hmm. my favorite question that I ask just because it's something that's practical and it's something that we can add Mm -hmm. to our practices tomorrow. But what's something that you guys did in practice that your players loved? I I think there's, when you asked me this or sent out the sheet, I I thought about this because there's 
quite a few things. I know the competition based stuff that they love, but I, I think, you know, we're not a, I was never a real big short game guy, but obviously you got to teach that skill. You got to teach it um, because they're going to do that at the next level. So we, we do this drill called, and people might do it out there already. We do a four corner bunny. So what we do is we'll set four coaches up around the mound and we'll have home plate, first base, second base, third base. Those will be the home plates. And we'll have the four groups lined up there. We'll set out two buckets at each station and we're going to work our sack bunts, our base hit bunts, our 40 bunts. We're going to work those exclusively. And, and the coaches are pitching and they're going to bunt the ball. They're going to try to bunt it. They got two points. If they put it in the bucket, they get a point if they hit the bucket and then they got to sprint to the next base. And we always had back in the day, we ran foul pools. So we'd always started like 30 foul pools mm-hmm. and we do a sequence. We go around and then we count each coach would say, all right, we got two points here, two points here. And we deduct foul pool. The more they got in the buckets. So it was a competition. Uh, they're working on their bunting skills, but a competition to get in the bucket to decrease how many foul pools they had to do. So it was competition based. They got all fired up. But at the end, this is the wrinkle to it. The coaches would line up at home plate. We'd have a, a trusted, a trusted pitcher out there. You can't just put anybody out there because they might hit you. Uh-huh. And we get the 40 bunny into buckets and add foul pools for them. So it's always great. You know, they start ragging on the coaches and, and, and so forth. And, and they just got a kick out of that. We just called it four corner bunning. And for some reason, it was always a great way to end practice. Usually they ended up very little foul pools at the end. Mm-hmm. Unless the coaches were just on with their bunning that day and we just stuck it to them. But it was always just a fun thing for the players and especially with the coaches for them to kind of get on the coaches and lighten up the mood. And it was something they just loved to do all the time. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. it was a real fun drill that they really loved to do. I love that. And, and I love that anytime we can make bunting interesting, I think that's always a win. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And so you, you've talked a lot Correct. about personal development and how you've been able to do that. Uh-huh. You've, you've given some good shout outs to, to Craig and Doug. But what are some of your other favorite books and resources that have shaped your coaching career? Well, I, I, I'm not, to be honest with you, a huge book reader, but Heads Up Baseball obviously is my favorite. I mean, Revisa and Tom House, the two books that they put out are just awesome for the mental game, which is a huge, obviously huge part of developing players and so forth. And I think that's my all-time favorite. And I'm not a book book reader, but the, the biggest thing I ever did, and this goes to all the young coaches, is went to the National Clinic. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first year, it was down in Anaheim when I first started coaching 25 years ago. I went down and went, and I learned, I couldn't believe how much I learned. I thought I knew a lot as a player, mm-hmm. but just the things I learned was amazing. I was kind of like what you were saying earlier, I wanted to implement everything I learned. And obviously, right. It's just so much information you can't, so you got to kind of pick and choose what fits best for you and your program and where you're at, the age of your kids and so forth. But I mean, I, and I had the best time in the world. I mean, being with the coaches, just interacting with them and just, I think the best conversations were probably at two in the morning out in the lobby where you're sitting there just asking questions of a college coach or, or someone you highly respect. And it's like, well, how do you teach this? How do you go about this? And I picked up so much 
so much stuff. It, it was just incredible. And I think for all the young coaches, go to the national clinic, go to clinics, be a fly on the wall. I always say this, be a fly on the wall, go locally. I was fortunate enough to have Jerry Weinstein over coaching at Sac City College when I was a high school player, Legion player. And I know my Legion coach went over there and just watched their practice day in and day out and, and brought all that stuff back to us. So I was able to learn all that stuff as a player and all that stuff I brought in, all my pick system, everything I know that Jerry put in at, at Sac City, but go over to a hitting facility, go like I did. I was a flying wall down at the ball yard. I got to see these guys come in and, and teach hitters. I got to see the UCLA softball coach, Sue Inquist, who was a legendary coach, come in and want to learn the process from the guys that were teaching in there. And that opened my eyes. I go, this is a well-respected softball coach that is on the national level that is one of the top coaches in America. If they're willing to come in here to a facility and learn from somebody because they think it'll help their players, well, man, I'm going to do that. Whether it's good or bad, you got to choose that, whether information you think is good or bad. But I'm sure there's people in your area doing some great things. Go, just go in there. It's funny how I know baseball people are, are so open about things and it's awesome the way it's getting. And once again, I got, I got to give you props for your, your podcast. Thank you. Stuff like that is just enlightening and you can learn from, I mean, a ton of information that is given out now is just amazing. I mean, you have to choose to, to be a bad coach. I mean, if you're passionate about coaching, go out and there's so many resources, go use them. I mean, that's what I did. I, I go to every clinic, I can. I know Doug's having a thing coming up I'm going to be involved with. I'm going to go to that. I'm not even coaching anymore, but I think it's going to help. Maybe can help my boys, can help hitters I work with on a part-time basis. And, and I'll bring that back to the program here and help them. Definitely. And I know we covered a lot of different things today. And oh, if, yeah. our, if our listeners want to get in touch and uh, talk with you about anything specific, what would be the best way to do so? Probably just uh, email, email. I'm, I don't have a website or anything, uh, anything like that. Just email J-E-G-C-A-R-L-S at E-G-U-S-D.net. And they can email me anytime. And if they have any questions, if they want any resources, I've collected a lot of resources over the years. If I can help, I'm always willing to help anybody out there at any time. Believe me, just ask. Don't know if I'll have the best answers are the answers you want, but I'll try and, and share what, what I know and which is very little, but there's so much out there. I mean, it's incredible. I'll, I'll get you headed to the right place. I love that. And so now I'm just going to open up the mic for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, I, I think we, we covered a lot today and, and I appreciate, like I said, I know I've said this a few times, but everything you're doing, just watching your podcast has, has been a great reinforcement of things I'm teaching and teaching me stuff. You know, I've been around for 25 years, 30 years, and I think I know and learned a lot of stuff, but I'm, I continue learning something different every day. So just keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing and everything and everybody out there that, that are doing the things they're doing. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out.
Once again, thank you for joining us.